0: In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Psalm 18, 6 and 7
1: listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, I'm your host, Zellin Heidi, here today with David Apple to talk about the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing? Doing well, Zellin. Good to be back on with you for Revelation. Always a good time. I'm yes. enjoying continuing this this series, and I'm going to be a little sad when
0: it's all done, to be honest. I don't know about you, but... Yeah, it, I mean, the year will be 2024, and uh, there's... <laughs> There will be that'll be just time to start over. This is how you teach Bible class, isn't it? When I'm done with Revelation, I do Daniel. When I'm done with Daniel, I do I do Revelation. Yeah, but now we're doing Daniel and Revelation. So I'm not sure <laughs> if this plan's gonna hold. So Yeah. Yeah. But how's the weather out your way? Um, it can't quite make up its mind whether I think last time I was on it was um I thought spring was spring was here. Now we're supposed to get another little bit of snow this weekend. Hopefully it's probably the last gasp of winter before spring really rolls in. But as of today, the sky is clear. The sun is shining. I think the forecast is 50 degrees. Um, spring is in the air. The grass is green. Buds are starting to, to come out on the trees, starting to flower, all good stuff. And meanwhile,
1: up here, uh, it snowed again and, yeah. uh, it's a little bitter. It's a little bitter this morning. A little chilly. I don't have the exact temperature, but it's one of those mornings
0: where you can feel it. You know, are the and leaves? The w- it, are you seeing any signs? Are there harbingers of spring? Nothing. No, yet? not even close. It's all I still mean, brown and white and gray. Brown and white and gray. It is. It is a
1: little overcast today, but I can see blue out my window. So that's that's always okay. nice. But yeah, so it's not total sepia tones. No. And, and I mean, we'll see the buds come out here soon enough. And I'm looking forward to the apple trees being in
0: bloom again. That's always pretty. Do you have, do you have the heat lamps fired up yet? (laughs) Not quite. No, it's not that cold. So, well, I mean, I mean, for your garden, are you, are you getting things ready? (laughs) Oh, I,
1: I haven't started too much yet. You have to understand we can't really plant those kinds of plants in the garden until June. Oh okay. So I mean it's it's getting close to being the time to start starting inside but it's not quite yet.
0: Yeah. Well, February, I mean, here you got to get you got to get your broccoli, you got to get your lettuces, all those kind of all those kind of things should be now I haven't done it yet, but those things should be they should be in the garage with the heat lamp going because you want to be ready probably after probably next week it'll be time to start putting the garden in. And then you can plant your potatoes on Good Friday. <laughs> well, see i just I just wait for you and Willie to tell me those things i'm not I'm not quite as up to speed on my almanac as I should be <laughs>
1: uh, it all works out, but yeah our our growing season is just a lot lot shorter than yours, and so that's why we have to wait quite a bit longer. but yeah, at any rate, we should probably get into revelation here. And we are continuing our discussion. We're picking up in chapter 15, since we finished with chapter 14 last time. But David, why don't you give us a, kind of an overview of where we've come from as
0: we go into this chapter? Sure. We, we were in what we were calling the heart of the book, 12 through 14, is kind of the central vision within the the big vision um, where you see the dragon and you see his beasts and you have the mark of the beast that was back in chapter 13. And then chapter 14 is sort of the, um, the outcome of that battle. Now in chapter 15, I think we move into um, I'm going to say the end game, Elwin, but I, I make no reference to Marvel other than that's something that people talk about it is, but it is moving into, I think the final, the final section, and uh, you get this—you uh, get it delineated this way. Then I saw another sign in heaven. So that's just a little indication. There's here we're advancing to an, the next, the next part of the vision, a new section in the book. And what we're going to see here in chapter 15 is very reminiscent of what we've already seen. This is why some commentators and and I think anyone who reads the book, you don't have to be a commentator to recognize that there is a repetition. Now, whether it's all describing the same thing over and over and over again, or if we're kind of moved, we're spiraling um, and advancing, we can we can discuss that. But you're going to have another series of seven things that happen here. So we had originally the seven seals that are broken open, then the seven trumpets, did I skip one? The seven, yeah, seven seals, seven trumpets. And now we have the seven bowls of the seven plagues are going to be poured out on the earth. Sure.
1: And you you bring up Marvel because, you know, you're trying to be relevant. I understand.
0: (laughs) Yes. Right. I mean, (laughs) I think that most Missouri Synod parishes won't have Marvel sermon series for another like 10 years or so. And then it'll be really pop. You know, that's just about how far behind the times we are. But yeah, it's when I say the end game, I mean, we're coming into the final, um, we're right. moving into the very final things here. Right, right. You're, you're just doing your, you're getting ahead of the curve
1: is what I'm saying. You yeah. know, yeah. you're, you're relevant. You're with it. So, but, <laughs> but, okay. So, so we're coming out of the heart of the book then. And we've talked about the beast. We've talked about, you know, the two beasts, you know, the dragon, all of these things and we've seen the the victory of of the people and all that what is the how does
0: chapter 15 open then i mean where where are we going from here well where we're going is that the victory so the victory is kind of promised all through the book right there are these there are glimpses of the the lamb and his army the 144,000 there are glimpses of the back in chapter 7 you had the the number that no man could number who are all around the throne you have glimpses of these things but it's not yet it's not fully delivered yet so it's it's kind of the you know there is a promise of victory but it hasn't been realized and in chapter 15 and 16 i think you have the the way that the victory of god and the victory of his saints is going to be accomplished is not without conflict, right? There's going to be, um, the world does not give up, does not give place to God easily. And so when his, as he is advancing his kingdom, as he is bringing about his victory, the flip side of that is that the devil must be cast out. Um, the world must be, there must be judgment. And so that's where the, what we're going to see in 15 and 16 is the revelation of God's wrath. Which is maybe the flip side of the revelation of his um, the vindication of his saints. Sure.
1: And I can't help but notice with the description of plagues here, as well as we're going to hear about the song of Moses and stuff like that. Um, I can't help but think of the book of Exodus when it comes to this part. And what kind of connection do we see there? I mean, how does how does Exodus relate to? Fifteen and sixteen, and you know what? What do
0: we what do we glean from that connection? Yeah, I think Exodus is the prototype here, and so the the same. You see a, a lot of the same imagery. You see a lot of the same. You know, it's hard to say the word plague without just immediately thinking of Exodus, right? Um, and like you mentioned, there's going to be a song of Moses that we'll get into in a minute here basically i think it's functioning this way what what god did for his people in bringing them out of egypt is now is the pattern for what he's going to do for the church in the end in the end it we are going to go through our own and we are in the process of going through our own exodus but this one is is better this one is final this one is ultimate
1: yeah and especially because later i believe Um, You have God calling for his people to come out of Babylon, right? You know, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. So you you do have this idea that our Egypt, as it were, is this is Babylon, is spiritual Babylon. And we are, I guess you could almost say in a kind of captivity, waiting for deliverance, right? To to get out of Um, opposition from the world, this all of these things that we're having to deal with. And right. so, yeah, the, the language of Exodus, I think, is
0: is very apt here. And it's I mean, the fact that you bring that up is perfect, because what you have in in the Old Testament is the the Exodus. Uh, when Isaiah take take Isaiah, Isaiah is maybe the most famous of this new Exodus prophecy kind of theme that the spirit inspires in in his prophets. And so Isaiah prophesies of um, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the exile into Babylon and the return from Babylon? Or is he talking about something more than something beyond that, you know, our exodus out of this world? And so these things pile up on top of each other. Egypt is Babylon and the, uh, the return from exile that Cyrus effected was it was what Isaiah was talking about, but not in its entirety right? That these things are typical. And the antitype, in some sense, is we could say it has both already come in Jesus, and it is still ahead for those who are in Christ for the church.
1: Well, yeah, because there is a sense in which we are saved and a sense in which we are being saved. I mean, the, the New Testament speaks in both ways. And I think, yeah, I think we could say that our great exodus, our great return from exile is yet to come. You know, that when God will bring us into that better country, the the true heavenly country in Christ, which will be, you know, the coming of the new Jerusalem, the descent of the the golden city, that sort of thing. So, I mean, this is, it's, it's all connected. I mean, what we're seeing here is more or less the Old Testament wrapped up I mean, all the big events of the Old Testament looking forward to this moment when God will finally deliver his people and bring an end to the horror of Babylon and all of the the turmoil that they've been going through forever. So, I mean, it's. It's all connected, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The spirit is one, right? And so whether, you know, it's it sounds Pauline, doesn't it? I mean, you can when you read when you read these uh you read commentaries and you read especially the higher critics, you know, this is a this is a Markin theme, or this is a Pauline theme, or this is a Johannine theme. Okay, it's biblical, right? And so right. the Pauline eschatology, um, this two the overlapping eons, the two ages. That's pretty much the Johannine uh, eschatology, right? There might be some some distinctions in terms of what's emphasized, but we do believe in the unity of Scripture, right, Zellin, and we do believe in the the authorship of the Holy Spirit, and so it, it fits that he um, he doesn't contradict himself. Oh, it's good you
1: said that. I was getting close to banning you for saying Johannine, but <laughs> no, it's it's all good. Okay. So let's, let's take the the specifics then. So let's start in chapter 15. And how do you want, how do you want to break it down? What's the first
0: segment you want to look at? Well, let's do, let's do the seven bowls because what happens it, well, let's do it this way. Look at the structure of chapter 15, um, because okay. that'll, that can kind of lead into a few other ways we can go in chapter 15. You have two, not different visions, but you have two parts of the same vision. And there, there's kind of a sandwich here. So uh, the first couple of verses says, I saw a new marvelous sign, and I saw these seven angels with the seven plagues. Then he sees something else, and that something else kind of interrupts these seven angels because he sees... So this that's what I mean by the sandwich. There is the initial vision of the seven angels with the bowls of wrath. Then he sees... The the saints singing the song of Moses, and then he return. He's going to return to the seven angels, and here's here's my take on it, Zell. And this is significant because he could have simply left out the vision of the the saints singing the song of Moses. He could just say, I I saw the seven angels carrying the bowls of wrath, and they went and they poured out their bowls of wrath. But the song of Moses comes in at the beginning here and we've seen this throughout the book of revelation as a a kind of promise before we get into the um the kind of terrifying signs there is there is hope for the church and the, and so the the vision is going to go away from the church but we always have in the back of our minds here that the saints are going to be preserved even through these bowls of wrath they're going to experience these plagues to some extent, but they're not going to be destroyed by them in the way that the world will be. Sure.
1: Well, and you could also, because like if you look ahead into chapter 16, which we may or may not get to by the end of this episode, you have the usual interruption between six and seven, you know, like we saw with the other ones, but it's not nearly as long, right? Because you just kind of have them gathering together, you have them assembling, and then the seventh, you know, pours out his bowl. So in a way, what we have here is the same kind of interruption that we saw before between six, the sixth and seventh, with the seals and the trumpets, but instead it's basically it's heading it. I mean, he's putting it up front,
0: which I think is significant. Yeah. It would be like, um, just so that our listeners get the sense of this. It would be like if you were reading Exodus and, um, God calls Moses, to go into Egypt and before you get a description of the plagues you get the vision or you it would be like you would look ahead to them standing beside the sea and singing the song of victory and then you go back and you're like okay and then Moses did the the Nile river you know he did all these plagues and so you would always know this is going to result in the people singing a song of praise for the deliverance of Uh, That they experience so this and I think that that should color the way that we understand chapters 15 and 16 God is pouring out his wrath But through the outpouring of his judgment on the world the Saints are delivered I know that you and I are both preaching on the passion according to
1: mark this Lent, and uh, It made me think of something that came up for the reading that we're starting with which is the uh, the anointing of Jesus um, at Bethany, right? It's very interesting that he is anointed there because he says that he, she has prepared my body for burial. But why does she do this? Maybe, well, maybe she had her own ideas. But why does Jesus say this? I should say, I think it's interesting because what's happening is he's saying it has to happen right now, you know, not only because I'm going to die, not only because of what's coming, but also because there isn't going to be any time afterwards, Right. When the women come to the tomb on Easter morning, what do they find? Nothing. There's nothing to anoint. There's nothing to to put oil on because the body is gone. And so in this way, we have this little picture of what is going to happen right at the very outset of the, the passion itself. You have Jesus saying, you know, the gospel is going to go out into all the world and I'm going to rise again, just like I said. And in a way, what's happening right now points to that, to that, yeah. to what is coming.
0: Yeah. See, I have told you all things before they happen so that when they happen, you don't lose your minds. You know, you just say, yes, this is, everything is happening just the way he said that it would. And I think that's good in, in Revelation. We've seen that in a number of places, God prepared, he does, he never does anything without first speaking to the prophet. And so John is, John is talking about these terrible things that are going to come on the earth. But before you lose your mind in fear and terror, remember, God is, going, God is working all these things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose.
1: Yeah. So even if the, the plagues come, which they will, you know, even, you know, even if God is going to do all these things to bring about judgment, which he will... And even if it seems terrifying, which it does to the unbeliever because, you know, it is a savor of death, yet we can still be confident knowing that God is the one who will deliver his people. So, I mean, it is (laughs) Revelation is really such a great book because it gives us the big picture. It gives us something to hold on to so that we don't get caught up in our cycles of fear you know, always worried about, oh, what's happening in the news? You know, what's going to happen now? You know, I'm not sure what the future is going to be like. We know what the future is like. God will bring wrath, yes, but the church will win. And I think that's such a great thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When, when Egypt was under plague, it was like the world was ending. You know, Egypt was ending. When Rome fell, it was like the end of the world. The world as, as they knew it fell. Fell apart, and if you're if you love the world when it falls apart, it's awful. But if you if you love the world that is coming, if your heart is set on a city with foundations, then it might still be an awful thing to to go through. I mean, it's not pleasant for the world around you to crumble, but it's not the end of it's not the end of your world. Your world is still yeah yeah yes. All right, well, with that, we're gonna go
1: into our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. your host, Ellen Heidi, here with David Apple continuing our discussion on the book of Revelation. So, David, we've kind of introduced this chapter and started a little bit into talking about what it's all about, but I think we want to take the next little segment of it, which I think would be verses two through four. You want to lead us into that? Where do you, where do you want to go with that?
0: Yeah, well, we've, we've already said this is like the the people of Israel at the Red Sea. But let's let's get the differences pulled out here. They're not, what he sees is not um, people standing beside the Red Sea. Okay, so it's described this way. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. So in, in place of the Red Sea, you have a glassy, fiery kind of a sea. And all those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Okay, so again, you can you can hear how similar this is to the Exodus, but in place of Pharaoh, now you have the beast, you have the the image of the beast, and person- the number here is one of those. It, it's another person or something that has been conquered. Sure. But maybe we should start with the sea, the glassy, fiery sea and talk about the difference there between that and the Red Sea. Sure.
1: Well, usually the description of a sea of glass, especially like at the end of the book, I mean, it's, you know, it's the idea being that it's like smooth, like glass, like, you know, it's perfectly at peace, but then you have it mingled with fire, which kind of makes it an interesting contrast. I mean, what what do you make of that?
0: Yeah, the, I think definitely the glass is this picture of a, a perfectly, and we've we've all seen this at times where the the water is perfectly still, and so it looks it looks like you could just walk right across it, right? It's reflective. It's it's it, and the fire there could be that the fire is um, an indication of the fiery abyss somehow. But I think here the images of a vic, you know the, it's a perfectly peaceful. It's an image of glory, the glorious, glassy, fiery. It it shines with fire. And so the fire is not a symbol of destruction, but it's a symbol of glory. Okay. And so what are they doing standing by the sea then?
1: I mean, what's because I know in Exodus, okay, they're standing by the Red Sea with their instruments, music, singing because of the victory, which God has just won over Pharaoh, right? They've seen the Egyptians dead. They see their bodies on the seashore. And so they sing a song of victory, a song of praise to the Lord.
0: I mean, is that kind of what's happening here or what are they, what are they doing? Yeah. So the fiery or well, the red sea was what had been left behind. It was the place where God's judgment was given on Pharaoh in its fullness, right? Pharaoh is buried down under that sea. And so now in As we come to the end of the book of Revelation, I think similarly here, this glassy sea is what used to be in turmoil. And it was the, it is the old world that is now, it's, it's perfectly still. Um, God has, and this is what I mean by you get a vision of the future. This is um, the, the fancy word is proleptic, right? It is a, a, a scene in advance of what is still to come. So they're and they're doing the same thing that the people of Israel were doing before. Um, they sing a song of praise, but in, but it is worth kind of noting the differences, or or at least comparing the song of Moses with this song. Song of Moses is uh, both looking back in Exodus; it looks back on what God did to Pharaoh. He made him sink like a stone into the depths, and it also in chapter fifteen of Exodus it looks ahead to how God is going to bring his people to Mount Sinai. And even, I think it even goes into um, the conquest of the land. So it is this song that both has a past and can anticipate the future.
1: And in this one, I mean, in this song, so looking at verses three and four here, you have a vision, I mean, basically a vision of what is to come more than anything, right? Right. So, I mean, yes, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations, great and amazing are your deeds. You know, through your, your righteous acts have been revealed. They're going to see this. But, you know, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Which is also interesting because the nations that God is pouring his wrath out refuse to worship him. So, I mean, this is, I mean, what, what do we make that? I mean, how do, we, how do we reconcile those two things?
0: Yeah, well, this is what I mean. I think that you've got to read this as um, it is the anticipation of what will come about. So God is bringing his judgment on the earth, and it's going to affect the nations in their entirety. And we're going to see that when we get to the rest of chapter 15. But even before that happens, the saints are already anticipating the final victory. And we do know that some of the some from those nations, um, as you mentioned, will not repent, but some from those nations will be called into the church. And so, even before um, everything uh, experiences God's wrath here in chapter fifteen, there is this note of uh, of hope. There is a note of of victory. Does that make? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Maybe it's
1: also this idea that. Well, like Paul says, you know, every knee will bow and all will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Some mm-hmm. will do that to their everlasting glory, you know, to their everlasting joy, but others will do that to their everlasting shame. Right. They, but all will be made to kneel yeah, and, you know, say that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the
0: one who has conquered. Right. So, I mean, I think you could see a little bit of that here too. Yeah, the, one of the other things that's different about this song—it's called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Okay, so the 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 Lamb really is the important figure here, right? Uh, but he is Moses-like. Um, Jesus is the the greater Moses. Um, the Lamb of God is the ultimate Moses. But you don't have the detail that you get in the origin, the first song of Moses. So the first song of Moses speaks very specifically about what happened at the Red Sea, what happened to Pharaoh, how he will bring his people to Mount Sinai. Here it's more we might say it's more general and that might be, you know, you want, you kind of want the details if if you're reading it like me. I'd like to know exactly how these things are going to happen, but it's it's more general because it is more universal. So, you know, God's God's deeds have been revealed his righteousness is being revealed and that is is not specified by the song of Moses even if we even if we wish that the details would be. but yeah no I, I think I think with this vision then
1: as as we said before, you get a preview of what is to come. we're looking forward to the victory of the church but now the the revelation turns to... A, a description of the wrath again, right? So the yeah. the rest of this chapter, uh, verses five through eight. So how do we how do we make the transition then? I mean, what what? How does the vision change as we move into the the last part of this chapter?
0: Yeah, in the last segment, I I compared it to a sandwich. You had verse one introduces the seven angels with their bulls of wrath. Then two through two through four is the song of the saints at the sea with everything having, you know, everything is glass, everything is calm. Now we go back to the seven angels. And I think the way to see the connection here, it's not like, it's not like these things are totally disconnected. The connection is, is I think made when you see God's justice as being a central element of that song, the people are singing in joy, because God's justice and His righteousness has been carried out. In the end, we will rejoice that God's justice, that His judgments are just and true, and they were enacted on the earth. Nobody in the end is going to say, "Well, He shouldn't." He, that was a little too severe, or that wasn't severe enough. It's all going to be, "He he did what was right. He did he did what was just." And so the song of justice that they sing, now has to be enacted through these through these plagues. Sure.
1: And especially in the 16th chapter 2, you get that same idea of, you know, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, right? Yeah. This yeah. idea that God bringing judgment down upon the nations for their iniquities and for their persecution of the saints will be something to celebrate. You know, that we we will rejoice in that day. I mean, in, I've said it before that it is a kind of gospel to say that, you know, God will bring judgment upon the earth. I mean, you think of the, the Psalms, for example, like so, the Psalms 95, 96, what, 98, 99, all those ones in there, you know, talking about God will come to judge the world with righteousness and people's inequity that is something to praise him for. And I think that's what we see happening here as well.
0: Yeah. And so the, when we get into this language of wrath and it's chapter 15 is full of God's wrath, you know, that there are these seven bowls. He is pouring out his wrath. But the reason that I, that I kind of led into this episode with that reading from Psalm 18 is because the anger of the Lord, his wrath being poured out on the earth, it is not unjust and it's not, we, we do want it to come. Now we don't want to pit his, his justice and his mercy against each other. Um, because when you do that, then you, you get yourself into some, um, some really tight, difficult places that you can't get out of, right? You want, do you want God's mercy or his justice? Well, I, I don't want to have to choose between those two things, right? Um, And when we when we try to pit those against each other, I think we end up in unable to really talk about passages like this in a way that is sound. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's you think of it this way. The two don't have to be pitted against each other, you know, because mercy and justice can exist in the same thing. God shows us mercy. In his son, Jesus Christ, you know, when by forgiving us our sins, by pouring out uh, his judgment upon Christ, while at the same time shows his justice because um, it would be unjust to Christ to punish us again for what he has already paid for. Yeah. So the two are perfectly in line with each other. They're not at all pitted against one another. God is just and he is merciful. At the same time, because I think the thing that really ties them all together is his ultimate righteousness. God always does what is right, whether that is showing mercy or whether that is showing wrath. He's always doing exactly what needs to be done. And that's why we can praise him for what he's doing. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I th- I think when you when you look at these bowls of wrath being poured out, these plagues of wrath coming on the earth, um, which will we we're not gonna cover exactly everything that happens here, but it's good to look at like other passages where you see this, because sometimes, Owen, oh, I'll just put it this way, sometimes there's um I don't know, what's the best term to use? There's like this overly simplistic idea that God's wrath was was poured out on Christ. Now is that true? Yes, it's true. But does that mean that there is no longer any wrath of God at work in the world? Romans 1 would be a place that would would be pretty, you know, that you could pretty clearly see, okay, Paul is not someone who is like short on God's mercy. Paul has right. a very very good sense. He's he's got the spirit, right? So he knows that the wrath of God has been satisfied, propitiated by the sacrifice of Christ. At the same time, Paul can say that in, in Romans 1 is probably the prime spot, that the wrath of God is still being revealed on earth in very particular ways. And so he, the, the wrath being poured out on Christ does not mean that there is no wrath outside of Christ.
1: Well, and I think I think the reason why we run into trouble with wrath is because we often think of wrath in very emotional terms. I mean, we are emotional creatures after all, and that's fine. That's how God made us. But we think of wrath as being like just blazing angry, you know, just completely mad at everything and just being almost vindictive, right? That's yes. usually what we think of when we think of wrath. But wrath is actually an ex- like, Kind of like I was saying, an expression of righteousness. God has been offended. His uh, holiness has been offended. And so he has to bring judgment down upon what has offended. It is a, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how to to get after it. But I mean, it is perfectly just for him to do so that wrath is not just being angry and lashing
0: out. Yeah. Wrath is doing what is right. No, I think I think you're right on. And when you like go back to Psalm 18, this prayer for God to deliver you know, who is praying Psalm 18? Well, it's it's the, these are the this is the prayer of David. This is also the prayer of Christ, who is the the true David, the final David, and those who are in Christ pray for the same things as Christ. So, the answer that David gets in Psalm 18 when he's in trouble, The Lord is going to deliver him and the Lord delivers him by bringing judgment on his enemies. The Lord delivers Christ by bringing judgment on his enemies. The Lord delivers the church by bringing judgment on her enemies. And isn't that what, I mean, if you go all the way back to the martyrs who were under the altar at the, towards the beginning of the book, that's what they were hoping for. How long, O Lord, how long until you vindicate us? Now we're seeing that we're seeing that vindication of the saints.
1: Well, I mean that's the whole purpose of the imprecatory psalms too. You know, break, you know, break their teeth, break the teeth of the wicked. You know, I mean we don't we don't like that language because it sounds, I, I guess, like I said, violent. It sounds you know like lashing out. Mm-hmm. But this is a perfect expression of exactly what we're talking about: that God is going to bring judgment upon the enemies of the church and in so doing will i mean we will be delivered i mean it is good news for us that god brings wrath upon the earth
0: yeah and i think that as long as you keep that connection to justice i think you're you'll you'll understand these things as not and the the way you're putting it zowen is really is really good you know it is not just god being personally well he is personally offended but that's not unjust. You know, he, it's not just that he ha, he's getting mad because he has thin skin and somebody said something that hurt his feelings. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the wrath that's poured out is due to the rejection of the Lord. You know, the, uh, that the nations have not just made a little, you know, they were politically incorrect in their speech or something. It's because they have sinned against the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth.
1: Right, right. Well, let's look at maybe a couple of more details here in this segment. So what we see already after the the standing by the Red Sea is the sanctuary of the Tent of Witness in heaven. I mean, I I don't know how else to read this other than the heavenly tabernacle. I mean, this is Hebrew's language, which, of course, is right up your alley. But, I mean, this is also... I mean, even in Exodus, the, the tabernacle is described as being a copy of the heavenly thing, you know, the pattern which was shown to Moses on the mountain. I mean, what do we make of the, the tabernacle being here? I mean, I thought we had a temple. I mean, what's, what, what's this all about?
0: Well, um, you, you know, Zellwin, that the temple, the temple in the book of Revelation is not a good place. After, after Jesus rises from the dead, the temple's curtain is torn, but it's not immediately destroyed, and right. so the temple no longer is the is the the holy place. Now the temple becomes the unholy place for those who oppose Jesus. But here, I think you're right on the t- the tent of witness is in heaven because when God showed Moses heaven, Moses built a tab a tent, so the 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 tent is a copy of the heavenly reality and here these angels are coming out of the that reality they're coming out of the heavenly place to bring these bowls onto the earth to bring these plagues onto the earth
1: and i mean is this i mean is this another connection then to exodus i mean is this just another way of showing how this is all connected i mean or is there or is there a deeper significance to this to this tent i mean what's what do, mean, what do we make of it being here? Is what you I'm mean saying. like
0: wh- why is it not described as the temple? Yeah,
1: why isn't it a temple? Why does it show up at all? I mean, God didn't God forsake the tabernacle at Shiloh? I mean, what what do, what do we do with this?
0: Well, there were there were other places like this in the Book of Revelation where I think it was when the thunders sounded that there were seen in heaven the Ark of the Covenant. And now we see a tent of witness, and I think what John is he is seeing and describing in these kind of old testamenty terms he is seeing what those things in the old testament were were just the copies of and so yes, God has he no longer needs the copies because the the realities have come right so Jesus when Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, the temple is n- no longer needed on earth because we have access to that heavenly temple and it can be described as the tent of witness. It could be described as the temple here. I think it's not significantly because the earthly temple has become this unclean, unholy place. And on
1: that note, (laughs) we need to go into our next break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fently Spoken. Spoken, I'm your host, Owen Heidi, here with David Apple, continuing our discussion of the Book of Revelation. Okay, David, so we left off in the last segment talking about the last part of chapter 15. Uh, we had talked a little bit about the, the tent of witness, the heavenly tabernacle, but now we go on to see a little bit more of this vision. So how does how does the vision continue?
0: Yeah, you get a you get an actual description of these angels. And you get a, a little more of a description of, um, we, we were talking about that, that it is a tent of witness that John sees, but here then he's going to, and I think it, it would do us some good to just pay attention to the details of the angels first, and then we can talk about the description of what fills that tent. Um, so the angels are described as wearing these golden sashes around their chests Mm -hmm. And they're, they're dressed in pure white garments. Right. Which makes them look pretty much like Jesus, right? (laughs) Correct. Yes. They, they're like little mini, they're dressed up just like him. And this goes back. If, if you go all the way back to, it was chapter one, wasn't it? Um, where Jesus taps John on the shoulder. And when John turns around, he, he has this, you know, the vision of the glorified Lord and Jesus is dressed like the high priest, um, except, you know, he surpasses the high priest. And so now his angels, the angels of Jesus are, you know, they're made to look just like him. And so they have the same garments on. They've got pure white holiness, perfection, right? And they've got the golden sash, just like the high priest would wear.
1: So is this just imitation? Is this the sincerest form of flattery or... I mean, what's what's the significance of them looking like Jesus? They're, they're big fans, and so they want to dress up like him, or what?
0: Well, it's, um, yeah, I mean, yes, to some extent, right? Those who love the Lord become like him. And that's true for us. It's also, I think, true of the angels. But if you think of the, who would come out of the tent on earth? When the tent of meeting was on earth, the high priest would come out, right? And the high right. priest was... The the reason there's so much attention to the vestments of the high priest in the book of Exodus is because the high priest was meant to look, uh, he was clothed in the holiness of God. Uh, He was clothed in the holiness of the Lord. And so when he comes out from the holy place, when he comes out from the most holy place on the day of atonement, he comes out as God's representative, right? And so he brings... He brings the people to the tent, and he intercedes for them. And then he, as the high priest, brings God out to the people. He brings a word from the Lord and gives them the benediction. Well, here, these angels are coming out as representatives of Jesus, clothed in him, dressed like him, looking like him. And so what they're going to pour out on the world comes from the conclusion then is, I mean, it's an obv- I think it's a fairly obvious conclusion, but they are bringing the, the message of of the Lord into the world.
1: Well, yeah, because how often are the angels described in all of the Bible, really, you know, as being the ministers of God, carrying out his judgments, doing his bidding. So, yeah, I think in this way, looking like Jesus shows that they are carrying his authority, that they're carrying out his will. Uh, on the earth, and Jesus is employing them for this purpose. And yeah, I, but I mean, it's also significant then that they are coming out of the sanctuary, right? That they are the ones who are stepping forth from the holy place, from where God is. As remember in the, in the book of Exodus, the very inner part of the sanctuary, the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant is is the place where God sits. It is his space. It is where he is. To be in there is to be in his presence. And so the seven angels coming out from the sanctuary show that they are coming out from his presence, You know that they are carrying out his will after having been in the, the heavenly council, so to speak. I mean, you think of Job too, right? That the son, the sons of God were gathered together and Satan was among them, but that's a different thing. <laughs> sure. Right. But I mean, but that they are, they see him, they adore him, but then they also come out to carry out his will.
0: And I, I, I don't think we should overlook that as well. Yeah. There. Now, as you're talking here, it makes me think of um, just some of the things we've discussed before that are worth bringing out again. When John sees into heaven, what happens in heaven, then come, almost always comes down on earth. Right. So you don't get this sense that heaven and earth are these totally two, two separated spheres that never have any interaction, but that what he sees taking place in heaven is then going to come down onto earth. And when you talked about Job, that's what made me think of it. You know what, what transpires in heaven between the conversation between the Lord and Satan there then is what happens in the whole rest of the book of Job. And so right. you don't have this, this sense of heaven and earth are two totally different spheres. They have nothing to do with each other. No, it's like we pray on earth as it is in heaven. You know, May thy will that is done always in heaven now take place on earth. And that's what you see here. The justice of God is going to be carried out on earth and it's going to be experienced as wrath over uh, those who, who are resisting him.
1: And I also think it's interesting that it says, verse 7, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. So I guess we see a little bit of the heavenly bureaucracy here. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because you have the, the four living creatures described in the book of Ezekiel as the cherubim. They themselves are angels, and they are the ones who sit around the throne of God. They are his throne guardians, if you will. You know, the ones who sit closest to him they hand to these other angels You know, one of them hands the seven bowls so it's kind of a god gave the order and the cherubim i guess his generals if you want to put it that way are giving the the order the chain of command in heaven i don't
0: know yeah yeah no i I think you're right now there that does introduce another question in my mind though uh we've talked about this before Remember in at other points in the book, the angels were like if you think back to the letters, right to the angel of the church in Ephesus or right to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Those angels are they are they actually angelic beings or are they the messengers of the church, the pastors? Here I mean, is that even possible, Zelwin, that these angels might not be angelic beings but that now what's going to come in chapter 16 is the I don't know I mean this might be a stretch but is it <laughs> the message that goes into the world does the the message of the church the messengers of the church carry a bowl of wrath that they pour out okay i think i think that's getting a little
1: a little far <laughs> i like where you're going i like i like the thought but i do think that these are actual angelic beings but that's not to say that like with the, the chain of command, so to speak, that you couldn't have, you know, from God to an angel, to an angel, to a man. We see mm-hmm. that happening all the time, right? You know, God happens to has, John, right? It happens. It's what's happening to John. So it's what's happening to John. Uh, it's what happens to Daniel. Oh, man, greatly loved. You know, I've been sent to, to bring you this message, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I do think that we could say. The angels bring, like, the message, like we saw earlier, you know, the angels flying overhead. Mm -hmm. They do bring a message which is to be proclaimed, and that message is also the message of the church. I mean, I mean, we have here the actual declaration, you know, God's wrath will be poured out. That is a message that men have been sent to proclaim. I do think that that is all connected. But the actual wrath itself, I think in this case, is the angelic beings pouring it out. On behalf of God and at His command.
0: Yeah, no, I. I, That's good. I think uh, it's just worth kind of talking through because it's easy to it's easy just to jump and say, well, at one point in the Book of Revelation, the angel was not an angel; it was a pastor. Therefore, at every point in the Book of Revelation, the angels are the ministers of the church. Well, in this instance, I mean, you could you could maybe make an argument. I could I would be open to hearing an argument for how the preaching of the word of God affects these things in the world. But it seems at least on, as I've been reading and, and studying and as we're talking here, that what happens is in chapter 16, as this wrath is poured out is affecting not just hearers of the word, but it's affecting the, the whole creation right? The water's going to turn to blood. And of course, these things are symbolic um, because the whole book is that way and everything is being undone. There is this, that idea of decreation, right? That God is, God's wrath is, is seen in that, like the flood, the, the waters that he had ordered in creation are now decreating or being uncreated in a sense. It's hard to see that as being what the, what happens when the church proclaims the word of God. Sure.
1: You'd like to think it is, though.
0: <laughs> well, you'd like to, th- yeah, you'd like to think that we're making a dip. I mean, we know that the, the word of the Lord is what is, um, that's what's really running history, right? History is not being run by, some, simply by, you know, smoke, smoke-filled back rooms. That's the way the world wants to think that they're in control, that they're in charge of what's happening and, and everything depends on the plots and the machinations of man. But the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs at such things. He has his he has his king set on his holy hill and actually the arc of history bends towards pulpits and fonts and lecterns and uh, altars, right?
1: And I mean, I, th- I suppose you could even make the argument since we're speculating here anyway, you could even make the argument that preaching does affect a change also in creation. I mean, you think of like Romans 8, for example, the whole creation groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, you know, and how do you become a son of God except through preaching and that sort of thing. I do think you could say that, you know, the word going out into the world is also doing something to the physical creation but i wonder if you know we wouldn't hear that with our human sinful minds and say yeah yeah you know i I'm, I'm pretty important <laughs> i think it could be easily misunderstood is what i'm saying
0: yeah we don't uh we don't want our listeners uh we don't want the word fitly nation to um go run out to the water and start screaming imprecatory psalms at the water trying to get it to turn into blood you know i mean go for <laughs> it guys but don't be disappointed when it doesn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be We something. do know, we do know Zellwin that there there is stuff in the water that we should not be drinking. We know that for sure. That's a whole different episode. David. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it will change you. You need we need reverse osmosis. Just be very careful, guys. Be very careful out there. Uh
1: Well, I think we're not going to get through all of, we're not going to get into chapter 16, but I do think that we should finish out this chapter talking about verse 8 in particular. So we have the sanctuary filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the plagues of the seven angels were finished. What do we make of that, David? I mean, what's what's the significance of smoke here? What does it have to do with glory? What, what, what are the connections?
0: Uh, the connections are... Oh. Just like the earthly tabernacle, just like the earthly temple, when the glory of the Lord comes into those places, they cannot be inhabited by anyone else. It's too weighty. And um, probably our listeners are familiar with that, right? Um, we could do, since Willie's not here, we can do whatever we want with Hebrew words, and we don't have to hear about the Septuagint. <laughs> the Hebrew word for glory is, is also conveys this idea of weightiness, so god's god's glory is a weighty kind of a glory his this smoke that fills the the heavenly temple is the the cloud of his presence and until the justice comes on earth that is impenetrable it is in inaccessible for us
1: well and i mean smoke and i suppose you could also connect that with a cloud for example the same idea of this like you know think, you know, this mist or whatever, this smoke that you can't really see through. The the fact that the sanctuary is filled shows that God is present. I mean, we saw the the, the cloud in the wilderness, you know, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of and the pillar of fire by night. Uh, but that cloud shows that God was present with his people that he was leading them. You have the filling of the of the temple in 1 Kings when God comes in and actually comes, you know, actually takes residence in the place and how no one is able to enter it. You see it in the tabernacle. I mean, you just I mean, even even at the transfiguration, right? The descent of the cloud when yeah. Jesus is transfigured, this is all connected with God's glory and his presence. And I think what we see here is another example of of this common idea, this common picture throughout the scriptures.
0: Yeah, those, and, and I think, you know, maybe this is overly specific. I don't know, Zoe, when you can give me your reaction here, but those are often the attendant signs of the whole, particularly associated with the Holy Spirit. So like when, when you hear on the mountain of transfiguration, you have the voice of the father, you have the face of the son, and you have the cloud that, that bright cloud that overshadows the whole thing, that overshadowing. I that's a a great verb that goes along with the holy spirit. So the spirit of God is being manifested in these these signs that John can see. This not that the spirit is smoke, right? That's not what I'm saying, but that when he is present there is smoke, there is fire. You think of what happens at Pentecost, the fire, the heavenly fire comes when the spirit comes.
1: I could buy it I've never thought of it that way, but I could buy it because like you say with with the the fire of Pentecost and that sort of thing, I don't know if this, I don't know if the spirit is ever explicitly said to be, you know, like smoke or like the cloud or whatever, but I don't know. I could be convinced.
0: I'll give you that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, it may be, it may be that I'm guilty of parallelomania. Um, if if our listeners know the term, but the fact that the spirit overshadows Mary when when Christ is conceived in her womb, and the fact that the cloud overshadows, the glory cloud overshadows the mountain of transfiguration, that's what makes me, and again, that's only one verb, right? But you also start to see that the, these, the cloud in the wilderness, the cloud in the temple, the smokiness, um, these things are not It's not like these are random occurrences and it would fit with a Trinitarian, a Trinitarian understanding of God's being throughout time. As it was in the beginning in the Old Testament, you don't just have the presence of the Son in the Old Testament. You also have the presence of the spirit in these, you know, it's never specified, but he's there too.
1: Well, right. Cause usually when you meet the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, it's described, he's described as, you know, rushing upon the kings or rushing upon the prophets. I mean, you even have him described as like a burden, for example, or, you know, or as a great weight, which is being laid upon Ezekiel. You know, the hand mm-hmm. of the Lord was upon me. I mean, all of this is connected and I would connect it with the spirit. It's just I've never, I never thought of it in exactly those terms. I'm I'm willing to go along with it. I'd have to think about it a little bit more, though. So, well,
0: yeah, we've we've got a couple more years in Revelation, so we'll uh, we'll we'll clarify <laughs> all things in the future.
1: But I think it's also important to note here, just kind of as a last detail, that no one can enter into the sanctuary because of the presence of God, because of His utter and complete holiness, and also because the the wrath needs to be poured out. And finished, right? So you have this idea that no one can approach unto him. I suppose you could even say, like, no one can make intercession, right? God is not going to hear a prayer to avert this judgment. I mean, that's certainly something that comes from the Old Testament. But not that we would want to, right? Because we want the judgment to come. But, you know, but God is going to do this and no one is going to stop him. Not, no one on earth, no one in heaven, it will be carried out. So there is a finality to it as well. Yeah. Amen. Well, David, any final thoughts before we close out for today?
0: I, I think it's a good spot to end on. Um, I would just kind of go back to the beginning here. And if you think about the structure of chapter 15, you, what we're going to see as we go forward here is uh, some the terrifying things that happen in chapter sixteen as the wrath, and there will be. We can discuss more this idea of um, that there is that God's wrath has been propitiated in Christ, but also that His wrath is coming. I think that's worth a little more discussion, uh, and we can get into that in our next in our next episode. Um, but even before that comes you have the vision of, of final deliverance and the song of the saints by the seashore um, where everything is smooth as glass. Well, oh, very good.
1: Well, thank you, David. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you hear, check us out at uh, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Selwyn Heidi here with David Apple. God love you and God bless.
0: Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Psalm 18, verses 8 through 12.